The Gospel lesson this morning is this beloved tale from the Gospel of John. The Common Lectionary actually gave us this passage to think about next week, last week rather, but I switched them around for my own reason, so hear this story from the evangelist John. <clears throat> On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples were there, and also Jesus' mother was there. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They've run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, what, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And Mary turned to the servants and said, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 25 gallons. And Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And the stewards filled the jars with water. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they did. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone else serves the good wine first, and then the bad wine after every guest has become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At the University of Michigan, my son Michael roomed for three years with a wonderful kid named Akil. Akil was from Long Island, but his heritage was Indian. His parents or his grandparents must have immigrated here a generation or two ago. A while back, Michael served as a groomsman at Akil's wedding in Brooklyn, and Michael came back saying, what a party. The festivities stretched over four days. There was a party on Thursday and a party on Friday at a party on Saturday. The couple sat in, a, in the center of a circle while various groups of relatives danced around their chairs for 90 minutes. And then on Sunday was the religious part of the ceremony. That lasted for three hours. And the party that followed went for another 11 hours. So 1 p.m. to 3 a.m. 14-hour party. The men, the groomsmen, wear that traditional Indian garb called kurta. And by the way, the groom arrived at the ceremony on horseback in Brooklyn. Now my son lives in San Francisco and he has a bunch of other Indian friends and some of them want to get married at a winery in the Sonoma Valley. And so when these young lovers go scouting wedding venues in the Sonoma Valley, do you know what the big selling point is? The first thing the vineyard owners want to tell the young couple is, we have an elephant license. You can bring your elephant to your wedding in the Sonoma Valley. Now, my wife and I are planning two wedding ceremonies this year, so we were a bit intimidated. But I hasten to assure you that when my daughter gets married here in June, there will be no elephant. I don't think we have an elephant license. But I'm going to check with Bev just to make sure. It's true in every land, in every tongue, in every religion, in every culture we know anything about. A wedding is always the biggest party we will ever throw unless we work for the Academy Awards or at McCormick Place. And this is just as it should be. 
because family is the fundament of our ordered life together as a human community. And so a wedding is a celebration of love and sex and children and the marriage of true minds and the union of soulmates, unbridled joy. And so at weddings we put the pedal to the metal and let the party fly. My favorite Shakespeare play by A Country Mile is Much Ado About Nothing, mostly because of the 1993 Kenneth Branagh film with Emma Thompson and Denzel Washington and Michael Keaton and Keanu Reeves, among others. Now, there are several weddings and Much Ado About Nothing, but if you are feeling blue about the polar vortex or the government shutdown or just the drudgeries of pedestrian life, Watch the final killer blowout wedding in Much Ado About Nothing and you will, be, you will just weep with joy. It's as if Mr. Branagh is trying to tell us this is life as it should be. This is the universe itself pouring out its blessings on you like fountains of chocolate or fountains of wine. By the way, this is neither here nor there, but... I started thinking about all the romance and love matches in Shakespeare's plays. It's the driving plot point in all of the comedies and in a couple of the tragedies. And so I asked myself how many weddings there are in Shakespeare's, what, 37, 38 plays? And it turns out the number is very small. There's lots of love and lots of sex. A lot of young men are smitten by young women and vice versa and many young women are promised as brides to many young men but the actual weddings usually occur off stage in Shakespeare's plays. Do you know why this is the case? It's because of course a wedding is a religious ritual, a sacred ceremony and the playhouse was considered to be too profane a place to host even a pretend wedding and so they were held off stage. It would be like getting married on the Las Vegas Strip. Oh, wait, that happens all the time. But you see my point. The biggest party my wife and I will ever throw will be on June 22, 2019, right here. That's true for all of us when we throw our daughter's weddings. And Jesus' day too. First century Palestinian weddings lasted for seven days. Tables groaned under the burden of the nourishment atop. And the wine flowed from fountains. Now, Palestine is a harsh and parsimonious landscape. There was never enough calories to go around for the average peasant in Palestine. And so they looked forward so much to these once-a-year blowout parties where finally they could get something to eat, enough to eat. And so the father of the bride could never run out of food or wine at a wedding. That was a social disaster of epic proportions. One commentator on this passage put it bluntly. He said, family and friends will pass harsh judgment on the father of the bride who cannot carry off a wedding in style. And so when the wine runs out mid-festivities at a wedding that Jesus and his mother and friends attend, Mother Mary comes running to her extraordinary son and she says they've run out of wine. Notice this. She doesn't ask for anything. She doesn't ask for a miracle. She doesn't ask for anything. She just says they've run out of wine. And of course, sensibly, Jesus says, why are you telling me this? Why is this my problem? And this beautiful telling, funny detail in the story, she just ignores him. She turns to the wait staff and says, do whatever he tells you. 
typical Jewish mother always getting her way. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus turns 100. John pauses to tell us how much water there was. 150 gallons. Jesus turns 150 gallons of common well water into a rich red Cabernet that the wine spectator would rate at 97. And so think about this for a moment. If the wedding at Cana in first century Palestine had about the same number of guests as we're going to invite to my daughter's wedding, about 200, that means three more bottles of wine for every single guest. And the festivities are almost over. This can only lead to trouble. Now, St. John is the only evangelist who tells us this story, and you probably notice that in the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' debut. This is his premiere on the stage of world history. This is the first thing he does. And this fact deeply troubled our Puritan ancestors. You know, they weren't teetotalers. They drank more beer than water. But they wondered if it was circumspect for the Son of God to squander his extraterrestrial powers, saving a wedding host from a social faux pas. You know, elsewhere in the Gospel, Jesus is always making lame men walk and blind beggars see and casting out demons and raising the dead. And here he is in John making people drunk. What's going on here? Now, could it be that John wants to say where Jesus is, there's joy, there's laughter, there's conviviality. Where Jesus is, there is fecundity, prolificity, plenitude, the overflowingness of God's very being. Some New Testament scholars think that John is cribbing from Greek mythology here, right? Dionysus is the Greek god of wine. Bacchus to the Romans about this time of year, just after the winter solstice when the days are short and the nights are long. The Greeks threw this huge party called the Dionysia in honor of the god of the grape harvest. There are several temples to Dionysus spread across the Greek isles and legend has it that at the Dionysus party the temple fountains gushed with wine. So maybe John is telling us that Jesus is the Jewish Dionysus? Is Jesus the God of wine? Can I say that in church? Yes, I can. Because Jesus is the God of everything. And so he comes to us not just in our sorrows, but in our laughter as well. Jesus comes with us to our funerals, but also to our weddings. Jesus patches together our broken hearts to be sure, but he also baptizes our gladness. But what exactly happened when that common well water turned into rich, wet red wine? Did he cast a spell over those 25-gallon water jars and instantly morph the chemistry within in a feat of divine alchemy? It's possible. After all, God does that every summer on the hillsides of Sonoma. Turns common rainwater into an ambrosial nectar that has gladdened the human heart for 10,000 years. So if God can do that, Jesus can do it as well. Maybe that's what happened. Or 
did he cast a spell, not over the water, but over the guests? Maybe Jesus invokes this magical incantation and voila, these guests who are drinking water think they're drinking wine. The transformation is not in the liquid, but in the humans. Richard Wilbur has this wonderful poem printed in your bulletins. He says, what love sees is true. The world's fullness is not made, but found. Whatsoever love elects to bless brims to a sweet excess that can without depletion overflow. Yes, the world's fullness is not made, but found. The sweet elixir was always there in Jesus' presence. We just notice it for the first time. What love seeks to bless brims to a sweet excess. Guys, do you know that your wife thinks you are more handsome than the rest of the world thinks? It works the other way too. Uh, Husbands think their wives are prettier than the rest of the world thinks this. This appears in survey after survey. Ask a hundred people how attractive a person is and usually the spouse will rate that person a little higher. If the world gives you a seven, your wife will think you're a nine. This might not happen if they ask her on one of your bad days, but you see my point. Now, this survey might be self-evident, right? Of course, we'd expect this. She said yes. On the first date, when you proposed, she said yes. So obviously, at some point, she thought you were dangerously handsome. Or perhaps it's that she's rationalizing a decision she made long ago that doesn't seem rational now all of the time. So this might be a self-evident survey, but I like to think that the reason spouses rate their spouses higher than the rest of the world is that because she likes you. You're precious to her. She can't live without you. And so you've cast a spell over her eyesight. She thinks she's drinking wine when she's just drinking water. Whatsoever love elects to bless brims to a sweet Excess which without depletion overflows. One woman said, When I found out that my husband could not meet my needs, I changed my needs. She couldn't transform him, so she transformed herself. She turned water into wine. They are happily married. The world's fullness is not made, but found. Maybe some of you know who Roger, Roger Rosenblatt is. Roger Rosenblatt was an accomplished colum, columnist for many years for Time Magazine and, and the Washington Post. I think he makes his living these days writing novels and memoirs. And about 10 years ago, he wrote the most wonderful article for The New Yorker. Roger's daughter, Amy Elizabeth Rosenblatt Solomon, was a pediatrician married to a hand surgeon. She had three children, seven, five, and 23 months. And at the age of 38, she collapsed on her treadmill in the basement playroom. It was the five-year-old Sammy who found her there. And he runs upstairs to his father and calmly says, Mommy isn't talking. She died instantly, anomalous right coronary artery. And when something, that hap- when something like that happens in your family, your memories become all that much sharper and brighter and more precious. And Amy's father, Roger, remembers the day his beautiful daughter 
married Harris, the hand surgeon, and the, the officiant at the wedding was actually a friend of the couple, a cartoonist, actually, and Roger remembers that the cartoonist said many beautiful things about the young lovers. And then, when he got to the climactic moment of the wedding, he said, with the power vested in me by the state of euphoria. I pronounce you man and wife. That made me so happy. And so on June 22, what I'm supposed to say is, with the power vested in me by the state of Illinois, what I'm going to say instead is, with the power vested in me by the state of euphoria, because that is where I'll be. And, oh, by the way, this mythic state of euphoria, you know who's in charge there? Jesus is the governor of the state of euphoria. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.